Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Kling Behind the Scenes. Once again, apologizing, voice still not 100% back, so we'll try and make the news portion of this week's episode short as well. We'll be joined on today's show by Emily Gray. Emily is a retail and brand consultant as well as a small business retail owner and small business retail expert. Emily will join us to talk about the landscape surrounding Small Business Saturday, but also the entirety of the holiday season as far as small retailers are concerned, giving us kind of a pulse on small retail, mom and pop retail, if you will, in the United States at this point. In news, we'll talk about Supermarket News' latest center store trends report. Lots of interesting takeaways. And we'll look ahead to a convenience store chain rolling out self-checkout to a select number of their stores. A quick reminder that you can like us and rate us however you access the podcast, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any other podcast listening service. Ratings certainly help others to find us and check us out. You can also follow us on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. So let's get to this supermarket news report. The Center Store has been an interesting place for most grocery retailers over the last couple of years. We've heard most grocers talk about the continued increasing sales in fresh and frozen during year two of the pandemic, but we know Center Store sales certainly contributed to supermarket sales boosts in 2020. However, the center store products, especially those distributed by larger scale CPGs, those have been beset by both inflation with increased transportation costs, especially with brands working from a distributorship model, also beset by supply chain issues like the rest of grocery. Even still, grocers in this survey seem to be decently optimistic about the short term future of center store products as well as their center store sales in 21. Let's get to the numbers here. And I should mention, I mentioned fresh and frozen in the intro. Frozen is counted as a center store product in this survey. And the supermarket news surveyed 110 food retailers and wholesalers with data collected during August 2021. As we noted, generally, if we take a look back at last year's data, 2020 was a good year for center store. 45% of retailers surveyed last year noted sales of center store products were up over 10% in 2020. 82% of retailers saw some sort of increase in that segment. However, despite the fact that center store hasn't been indicated as a massive area of growth like Fresh has, for example, during earnings calls and sales updates in 2021, this report suggests that it has still seen a decent year-over-year boost. To that point, 80% of retailers overall expect center store sales to remain the same or increase when all is said and done this year. Of these, an impressive 20% predict double-digit increases, while 24% expect high single-digit increases, 20% expect decreases of dollar sales, so going the other way on the dollar. Meanwhile, in terms of unit sales, only 25% of respondents expect decreases, so more people expect decreases of unit sales than dollar sales, which we'll get to in just a moment. And again, this sounds impressive on the surface, but it's even more so considering we're talking about year-over-year numbers here, considering those growth headwinds 
grocers are facing this year, particularly in terms of lapping high sales numbers for the last three quarters of 2020, and then these recurring supply chain issues that have taken place during the entirety of 2021 versus just the last three quarters of 2020 last year. It's really left portions of center store shelves unstocked. If you've been to a grocery store, if you've been to a general merchandiser of late, you might see entire aisles with very few products on those shelves. Again, though, we do want to note that this survey is for mostly dollar sales. So the possibility of large inflationary jumps like we've heard about 5 to 7% in the back half of this year might be driving stores assessment of sales as well as the difference between unit sales and dollar sales expectations like we talked about how people expect a larger decrease of unit sales versus dollar sales. So obviously charging more for the same products because you have those inflationary impacts, you have those supply chain impacts. And it seems to be at least somewhat good if this is true that retailers aren't expected to curtail their consumption of these products based on potential price increases or price increases that have already been seen. Now, as far as the percentage of sales expected in each product category, the survey data broke this down as well. The specific question here was what center store categories have had the most success during the pandemic? Now, in terms of high selling categories, retailers noted shelf-stable food, household cleaners, and paper categories to all come in as their most successful product groups. It's a virtual tie between the three of those from survey respondents to that question, that most successful question. In fact, between 56 and 57% of respondents answered in favor of each of those categories. And I should mention respondents could answer with as many categories as they choose. So multiple answers were allowed. Now in 2020, the household cleaners segment was judged by more retailers to be a high performing pandemic category than this year. 73% last year versus 57% this year. That's kind of understandable. It paper goods coming in at 71% last year. That too has fallen off as stockpiling behavior has not continued to the same extent. And then shelf-stable food was about 60% last year. So not a big drop-off there. But in terms of rising, beer and alcoholic beverages saw a rise in this poll as 47% of respondents named this category as a successful one during the course of the pandemic. 45% named frozen food. That, by the way, is down from 63% last year. And meanwhile, this is something that surprised us, at least. The pet category saw only 14% of stores noting it as a successful category. So that suggests a disconnect from what we've heard, in particular from Albertsons, who said the pet category doing very well for them this year. Could be that customers with all of these new pets that we've talked about since the start of the pandemic are seeking pet products out, maybe at pet-specific stores, maybe at Chewy.com, maybe via other non-grocery store sources. Now, although this data on performance to date is interesting, we also take a large interest in how retailers are treating the center store currently and their strategies to drive sales and share of wallet. So a couple of questions in this survey were devoted to this topic. And for the question, which of the following steps are you taking to increase center store sales? The following answers were most popular. Delivery, curbside, and new product innovation were at the forefront of responses here. That's to no one's surprise. If you listen to 
any grocery earnings call, if you've listened to this show, if you've even paid attention to what grocers are doing and how they're marketing, they're using all of these things, of course, to drive overall sales, not just center store sales. However, I think it's interesting that 40% of respondents here said there's been an attempt to merchandise shelf-stable products alongside fresh foods on the perimeter store. So here you have a category in fresh that is doing very well, whether that's in meat, whether that's in produce. And because of this roundly hailed success that these categories have had, it makes complete sense for grocers to cross merchandise products from the center of the store out to the edges of the store where people are increasingly shopping. So I think that's interesting. 40% of respondents looking to do that. 24% of respondents actually said they're reorganizing aisles based on meal occasion. 17% said they're banking on health reformulations of existing products, including private label products, to boost sales. People still health conscious, something that kind of has always been the case, but certainly got a spur on during the pandemic. Another question that was asked was, how can supermarkets best fight competitors for center store sales? And once again, the number one answer here is price. 25% of respondents choosing price. Probably not great news for independent grocers that don't have as much leverage with distributors, with suppliers, like the big ones do. Kroger, Walmart, Albertsons among them. 22% said delivery or curbside pickup was a main differentiator in terms of fighting competitors for sales. Specialty products. So 20% said this local plant-based healthy products, something that maybe you might not be able to find at the larger retailer. Private label was also a favorite answer coming in at 15% and 9% of people said value added offerings such as offering an in-store dietitian or some sort of sampling program. And of course, we're very bullish on that dietitian role here on the podcast. Friend of the podcast, Leah McGrath out at Ingalls doing a great job as their dietitian and certainly helping to add value to Ingalls offerings. But we're seeing other grocery chains do the exact same thing. For example, Kroger has begun to publish a magazine, send that out to regular customers as well. So a lot of different things that were answered in this survey, but again, it all comes down to price, at least in the perceptions of those retailers. And one final note, in terms of those private label products, that was a question in the survey as well. Where do you plan to add to or update your private label offerings in the next 12 months? 50% of respondents said new product innovations that goes back to what we talked about earlier in terms of differentiators, in terms of driving those sales. 47% said natural and organic, continuing certainly a trend that we've seen over the last five to 10 years. Specialty products, including gluten-free was another large answer. Multicultural products as well, something Kroger and Albertsons both have been very bullish on in terms of their private label products and Target certainly an entrant in that category in terms of very specialized private label products with their good and gather brand. So I think fairly interesting from this survey. By the way, 10% of grocers surveyed said that their private label products they anticipated would enter a new product category in the next 12 months, some of which saying maybe in alcoholic beverages some of which noted cosmetics as a potential there. So again, you've seen this push towards private label, not only 
towards cheaper private label products, but specialized private label products, private label products in that kind of what you might consider maybe a sub-premium space, not quite the premium space, but it's something that grocers are looking at and something that grocers are finding really drives traffic to that center of the store. So a very fascinating survey there for Supermarket News and certainly appreciative of them sharing their findings with us. Well, coming up after this break, we'll be joined by Emily Gray, retail and brand consultant, among many other things. Emily will share with us kind of the state of small business retail, the state of mom and pop retail, so to speak, heading into Q4, as well as what we can expect as far as the holiday season is concerned for these small businesses and smaller brands seeking to get on shelves in those smaller businesses. We've spent the last several weeks previewing Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and the 2021 holiday shopping season, but there's another so-called shopping holiday that occurs right in between those two that we haven't addressed. And although most are likely aware of Small Business Saturday as a cause championed in national advertising by American Express, the fact remains that the holiday shopping season is just as important for small retailers as it is for the big ones. And joining us to discuss the landscape of small business retail is Emily Gray. Emily is the founder of The Flourish Market and The Wholesale Way. The Flourish Market is a brick and mortar and online boutique based in Raleigh, North Carolina. And Emily is a retail and brand consultant among many, many other hats that she wears. Emily, we're so glad to have you on the show. Welcome to the podcast today. Trent, thank you for having me. Now, first, because I think your story is quite interesting, I was wondering if you could share just a bit about kind of what led you to retail in the first place, a bit about your background and then also the growth of your enterprises as well. Absolutely. So Trent, a third of life crisis led me probably like many people to launch into a new career. And so I always tell people I came into retail with zero experience ever working or owning and really shopping that much in person at retail shops. So my background is actually in investment banking. So for almost nine years, I worked for a very large Swiss investment bank with 55,000 employees. And during my career, I was based in London for much of that. I got to live and work all over Europe and Asia, New York City. And I have always been an economics dork, but that definitely helped me lean into my love of numbers and macro economic trends. But my role was specifically when I left the vice president of change management and communications. And what that meant was I was tasked with helping middle and senior managers at this big company really understand how to lead their employees through change. So when chaos was all around, you know, I started this job in 2007. And so, you know, in 2008, we all know what happened. We don't have to return there to revisit all of the hard things that happened that year and those years that followed. But when chaos was all around, I had to help these managers focus their teams on achieving shared goals. All right. So you see that now in every facet of what I do, but kind of how I got there was during that time, you know, living in London, I got six to eight weeks vacation. It was amazing. And I spent a lot of that time using the skill set I had honed in corporate to like behind the scenes with nonprofits and social enterprises to help them win people over to their fundraising efforts or to help win people over to buy their fairly made goods. So it was really exciting for me to feel like I had a little bit more purpose, even though I loved my job, that I could really see the impacts behind the scenes where I was serving 
really help these nonprofits and social enterprises gain traction in what they were doing. And it was funny, I'd travel all over the world and my friends would always place like orders with me and they would say, oh, bring back a bag or jewelry or clothes like you got in this country last time from this really cool social enterprise, this business doing good. And I had a life moment kind of click right before I turned 30. I saw a picture of a fashion truck, an article, a news article, and it was called LA's first fashion truck hits the streets. And it was this thing I never heard of, this little mini boutique on wheels. And it clicked with me that, hey, what if I took products, ordered them like a real retailer, but tested the concept of this like do good fashion boutique by converting. It was an old uniform delivery truck and yeah, launching that in my city. And my friends thought I was crazy. I had this incredible career that was just, I was definitely going places, but I decided to try it out. So at the age of 30, I quit my corporate job I took $8,000 of my savings. I bought an old uniform delivery truck and I launched the Flourish Market. So the first year I was in business for the first 13 months, I was a little mini boutique on wheels. We carried 10 brands. We grew to like 20 brands. Flash forward to today where we carry over 250 brands, all of which have a bigger purpose. So whether it's clothing made by sex trafficking survivors in Nepal or jewelry that supports childhood cancer research or leather bags made by women fighting the stigma of HIV and AIDS in their countries. Everything that our customers could touch in-store online help drive like positive change in the world. So yeah, crazy story. (laughs) So given all that, that somewhat brings us up to today, but I'm kind of curious as far as the Flourish Market is concerned and also to kind of set the stage for our listeners a little bit. After moving into a brick and mortar space in in beautiful downtown Raleigh, which by the way, if our listeners haven't been, highly recommend going. After moving into that brick and mortar space, what are some developments that have taken place within your retail business outside of just obviously the growth and the carrying of more SKUs there? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Trent, for the shout out to Raleigh, North Carolina. I too think it's a really cool place to visit and to live. So I mentioned before my skill set I had honed in corporate and how you can see that in everything that I do. And so I would say the developments of how I've fallen into my career is two things. One, with chaos all around people, especially the past few years as the pandemic has hit, our customers have really wanted to lean into, okay, but what are the goals? Like, how can you help me do good in the world when everything seems really overwhelming? And so when people shop with us, I see that snowball effect in other areas of their lives where they feel like, okay, my purchases make a difference. I can vote with my dollars, my voice, all these things, even despite a global pandemic, right? Our customers leaning into that. And then bigger than that, twofold, we're seeing that in economic trend reports. So obviously so many hard and horrible things have happened in the last couple of years because of this global pandemic. But one silver lining we have seen is this shop small movement, is people, consumers, especially in America, learning the power of their purchase in supporting their values and how they shop, who they're supporting and who is behind their products. So that has been really cool to see on a macro level, finally, really for the first time, being reflected in numbers and on these big, big reports. So that's very exciting. And that is why I really fell into the last year and a half, focusing a lot of my time on coaching these indie brand owners and these makers and how to pitch their products to retailers, especially independent retailers, and get their products onto store shelves because there's never actually been a better time to pitch retailers. We have changing needs in our consumer base, right? I don't know if anyone listening, if you've changed what you've purchased in the past couple of years, 
it's just kind of across the board. Retailers are trying new things, trying to keep up with changing consumer demands. And so we are looking for new products, new brands, really cool makers, and we can't find them. It's hard to find people via Google. And so we really, really need these brands to pitch us. And a lot of people I work with, the first thing they say is, I don't want to bother retailers during this time because I know it's still a challenging season. And it's actually the opposite. There's never been a better time, like I said, to pitch retailers because it's a challenge for us right now. One of our biggest challenges is finding new products that are in line with our customers changing needs and values. And it's interesting because I think, you know, obviously sourcing a big thing as far as retail is concerned now, but for different reasons, mostly because of supply chain reasons, because of import reasons and the like. I'm wondering, as you look throughout the landscape of small business or small retail in the United States, other than product sourcing, what are some current maybe challenges or positives coming out of that small retail business community that you see as an integral part of it? Yeah. Okay. So, well, first of all, sourcing is very difficult. I won't even go into that, but thank you for recognizing that. Shout out to all of you brand owners who are navigating all the difficulties that come with actually just getting your products to retailers. I know it is not easy right now. It's not easy, but I'm really seeing five big changes as far as in the independent retail space. I can go through quickly and I'm a big believer. I'm wearing my change manager hat from corporate that I don't just talk about changes, but I give like a very tangible tip to correspond with these changes. Again, when there's like chaos out there and, and just things moving around, I think providing tangible tips is really helpful. So The biggest thing right now is that retailers are making smaller, smarter, more frequent buying decisions. Okay. So we got stuck with a ton of inventory when the pandemic hit. And so now we have what I call COVID PTSD. So whereas normally we would have been spending, you know, 500, a thousand, 5,000, $10,000 with our bigger brands twice a year. So like once in the spring and once in the fall, that has gone out the door because consumer needs are still shifting. For example, this summer we were thinking, all right, we're going to, it's roaring twenties for the fall and holiday season. So we're going big with that. The joy of gathering is a big marketing story, but then the Delta variant hit, right? And so now we're trying to feel our way through that. Are people still going to gather? How is that going to work? So we are making much more frequent buying decisions and we are now, you know, doing a couple hundred of dollar of orders at a time. So this is because of the still uncertain environment. So my recommendation here, the tangible tip I tell for makers and brand owners, unless you're a very big brand, right? But if you're an indie brand and a maker, I would drop your opening order minimum to $150 unless you make luxury products. So get 10 to 20 pieces of your product into a store. You just want to get your foot in the door. And then probably two to three weeks later, we'll make a bigger order with you. But right now I'm seeing a lot of brands still trying to do $500, $1,000 opening minimum orders because that's how it's always worked. But if you lower that, that'll help you get your foot in the door with new retailers, which is what you should be doing right now. The second thing I've seen is just everyone seeing this, but the increased role of online shopping and curbside pickup. McKinsey studies are still saying this is, (laughs) people are still loving that. They kind of gotten used to that. And so I know a lot of retailers went online for the first time or really like up leveled their online shopping experience. And my tangible tip for brand owners here is you've got to have really good images. Okay. Really, really good product images. Now is the time to put some budget towards that 
or to do some training on your own to figure out how best to use like your iPhone in natural light. It is just whatever you can do. These images have to be as good as you can make them because a lot of times retailers were passing up really cool products because the images aren't great. And everything now that we bring in is pretty much going up online and consumers associate the nicety of a product with the product image. So get those images up leveled. <laughs> that is like a big piece of advice. The third thing I'd say we've definitely seen, we mentioned this earlier, but we talked about just people shopping their values and gift shopping, even in line with their friend or family members values. So there's kind of this like bigger accountability now and who is behind your products. So the values we're seeing make it onto trend reports are made in the USA, fair trade, handmade, eco-friendly and sustainable, black owned, LGBTQ owned, lots of values hitting the scales for the first time. If you are watching, you know, for example, the news stations, Good Morning America, watch what they're highlighting, you know, and their deals and steals or small business owners, they're highlighting they're definitely bringing forth what consumers are demanding on trend reports right now. So tangible tip there, if you fall into any of these values, which most people would lead with that in your marketing, make sure it's on your product pages, make sure it's on your about pages. So talk about it on social media, put it in your pitch emails. We want to see that because if our consumers are demanding that, show us that you offer that so we can then market your products really successfully in our business. The fourth thing for sure is product innovation and needing that. So retailers, we're shopping more breadth over depth. So whereas we may have bought 50 to 100 units of a product before, we're now buying five to 10. And that comes from pandemic days in the thick of lockdown where people were just stuck in their house and so bored. They were just browsing online and they are expecting new, 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 all right, to keep them interested. And that also came from retailers we were kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall. Like what will sell, you know, are we doing face masks now, loungewear? We were trying out new things that we had never sold before. And so because of that, we had new products every week and now we can't go back. So because the environment is still ever changing and because we are more risk averse and because consumers are demanding to see new things every week, we want more breadth than depth. So my tip here for brand owners is Instead of launching a fall and spring collection, can you launch four to six or more mini collections throughout the year? It doesn't mean you have to make more products, just break them up into smaller launches throughout the year because it gives you another reason to email us and pitch us to let us know you've got something new coming out. If you're selling on any of the online platforms like fair.com, which is like the Etsy for retailers where we go to buy independent brands, it means you pop up on our feed as you've just put up new things. And it also gives us another reason to talk to our customers about you and your brand online. Anytime we get something new, we're normally showing that on social media and in our email marketing. So those would be my tips. My fifth and final thing I'm seeing, I'll circle back to how I began this. We need new brands like never before. And so I really need to see you pitch us, <laughs> okay? I'm in a, a mastermind with 99 other retail owners across all different industries. And this is our common problem right now is we're searching for products and new brands and we cannot find you. So please, 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 that's your biggest tip I can give you is to pitch us. So we've talked about some of the things that retailers or the brands that retailers might be carrying should do 
to kind of expand sales or should look at doing to kind of expand their outreach. And I'm kind of curious, you, you mentioned, of course, being in the group with 99 other retailers. Obviously, you're talking with other small retailers on a regular basis. What is this holiday season shaping up like, at least in the early going, knowing that we could have it spread out legitimately throughout the entire fourth quarter? It is so funny. You know, we thought people shopped early last year for the holidays. People were definitely buying September and October. People started buying this summer. We've been talking about it. And I think that's because in June and July, I started seeing the big news outlets cover like big stories on shortages of holiday and telling people you need to shop now <laughs> and people listen to that they, they felt this anxiousness right so we're definitely seeing that play out in our store and in all of my retailer friends we're all talking about it especially when consumers are hearing on the news like there's a turkey shortage for thanksgiving and there's like christmas tree shortages in the faux christmas tree industry so definitely consumers are shopping earlier and what I would say for my retail friends out there, I think something we can leverage and really lean in on this holiday season is listening and listening well to our consumers and ask them, what are they buying for themselves? Let them help you shop for the holidays. I know for us, we're still buying things for the holidays. We have not finished our orders yet. So our plan at the Flourish Market through the rest of this week and early next week is to put things up on Instagram, do some surveys through email, to really get our customers to vote and give us feedback on what their needs are this holiday season. Because I think the general consensus with retailers right now, especially independent retailers, is we're still trying to figure out what are people going to buy for themselves and this holiday season. And so I think it's about asking them. And I find that when you listen to your customer base and really like give them feedback in real time and say, okay, we bought this because you said, you wanted this. Okay. What else are you thinking you would need for X, Y, and Z this holiday season? I find that when you do that, people, it helps leverage that shop small movement, right? That we're seeing in the trend reports. It helps leverage that because your customers don't just feel like a reader of your story. They actually start to feel like a co-author of your story because they are right. We need their dollars and their opinions and their feedback to help write the next chapters of our business. And so I think we can really lean into that as retailers and even brand owners and get our customers involved with actually what Q4 will end up looking like for us this year. I think it's cool to get our communities together and lean in on that to help figure out together what that's going to look like for all of us. I wanted to also ask a couple of more generalized questions because, again, as you've noted and as we kind of talked about in the intro, you're pretty well ensconced into the small business retailing community. And we've had interview guests discuss in the past, in the recent past, a number of the, the back end or maybe technological advancements that the larger retailers have enjoyed as a result of scale, as a result of bringing in third parties. I was curious, what are some of the ways in which smaller retailers can kind of keep up with the bigger fish, and you, you mentioned one, maybe having a dialogue with customers without spending millions on analytics or additional back-end platforms there. What are some ways where small businesses can really hang in with the big boys? Oh, I love this question. And I think it is about turning off or putting up blinders to what the big folks are doing and going back to the basics. Independent and small brands that made it through this pandemic were those of us that had really strong relationships with our customers, 
who we could lean on and who came to our rescue, right? So for us tangibly at the Flourish Market, that means I've been in my store more. I've done more training with my employees on making sure we're creating meaningful connections and an incredible customer experience when people walk in our doors or shop with us online. We put a handwritten note we always have in every package because we cannot compete with Amazon. We cannot compete with these big, big businesses, right? We, we can't. And if we try to keep up with that and make those enhancements to our website or compete on price or even compete on convenience, we cannot do it. Small retailers, small brands, the only thing we can compete on <laughs> is service and experience that we provide in the meaningful connection. So for me, you know, I get asked all the time because everyone's buying clothes off Amazon now and people are like, what are you going to do? And there's a lot of companies from overseas who are targeting our customers with ads for products that look like ours. I said, well, the only thing we can do is what we have always done. And that is creating those meaningful relationships with our customers. I think the pandemic, yes, people started shopping at big retailers for convenience and all of that. But also we saw even more customers coming in to see us in store because their bodies had changed during the pandemic. They needed new pieces of clothing to add to their closet, or they just needed human connection for the day because they're really stressed out with their kids at home and they wanted to come and connect with another adult. And then also being able to deliver on their needs in real time and show that we're listening to them. And yeah, like they're an important part of our story. So to surmise it, we can't compete with the big folks on, you know, their KPIs. We can't, we can't. And so we have to go, you know, my grandpa was an entrepreneur. He was an appliance repairman. And I think I constantly am thinking, especially during the pandemic, what did my grandpa do to ensure that he got referrals and to ensure that his business kept going strong? And I've really leaned into that. And so in a world and that where chaos is all around us and we're being told we have to do all these things to our website and use AI and all these things. Yes, I will use parts of those in my business at times, but my main focus will continue to be on how I can continue to best show up and serve our customers and offer an experience they cannot get with a big box retailer. Now, one of the other more generalized questions I wanted to ask, it's been several years now, but I remember having a small business retailer on the podcast and they said, hey, we more than anything enjoy the flexibility and the ability to quickly implement change, be a little bit faster to implement that change that larger retailers might not have. And I'm curious in, in talking with fellow entrepreneurs, fellow small business owners, what are some examples recently where maybe having this flexibility, having this agility to make an instant change, if you will, has paid off? Oh my gosh. I felt so lucky during the pandemic to be a small retailer and not a big box retailer because we all had the, the rug pulled out from underneath us at the same time, right? No one knew what was going on. And yes, the big brands could pay, you know, retail experts and all this to do research for them, but that takes time to get in. And there's a lot of people in the food chain that have to sign off on things. For me, I have a team of 16. Obviously, I'm the final decision maker. You know what I did? Specifically, we've been able to pivot to $20 and under gift items. I found that people, instead of buying clothing for themselves while they wanted a few pieces of loungewear, which by the way, we never carried before. We carried like dresses and nice tops. We immediately pivoted to pick up loungewear. And then we heard that folks now wanted to buy little gifts for people to drop up on their front porch or if they got sick or were feeling stressed because they're in healthcare or a teacher or something like that, they wanted to be able to send gifts to them or drop them off on their porch, we're immediately able to, we took shoes and bags, 
We no longer sold those. We took those out of our merchandise. We did a sale to have some income on that. And then we pivoted and brought in over 200 gifts that were $20 and under. And we did that in less than two weeks. So I got on the phone with customers and did customer roundtables over Zoom the early days of the pandemic. And they had ideas to do like $30 gift bundles. So we put together over $130 gift bundles and launched those and sold out in less than 24 hours. Right now for the holiday season, we're finding it really easy to pivot when we thought we were doing like the roaring 20s and the joy of gathering. Now our customers are telling us they're not sure what their holiday plans are. So we're finding things that are helping them connect virtually. So we're bringing in products like conversation cards. We brought in grandparent pen pal kits. So these are the things that we're able to do really quickly. And I always tell brand owners, I'm like, don't snub getting your products into a small retailer because big box stores, they're watching small retailers because we can pivot very quickly. In fact, I did a free training a couple months ago and a target buyer registered for my training <laughs> with her target email. I looked her up on LinkedIn. And so people, I think these big brands, they have their eyes on small brands because, you know, we're like a little jet ski in the sea. We can kind of zip around pretty quickly. And they're like a huge, huge ship, which can take hours and hours or days to turn around. So I feel really lucky we're able to pivot in real time especially by being able, the main decision makers, the two buyers I have, and then myself, we're in the store and we can see how people are interacting as well with the products. And we can figure out what we need to put on sale. We can figure out what we need to get rid of and what people are really loving and bringing in more of that. And then one final question and and one other benefit of interviewing someone that is the head of a smaller retailer rather than a larger retailer is I don't have to worry about non-disclosure agreements and that Yes. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you what's next for the Flourish Market and what's next for you personally? What's coming up? What can we expect in the next 12 months or so? Oh my gosh. Well, what's next is the holidays. So it's always very hard for me to not launch something new during the holidays, but my focus is on being in my store more than I've ever been in my store this holiday season. So the big thing we're doing is we are launching a campaign to do 100 in store parties in October, November, and December. This is where we ask one of our customers to invite all of her friends to party with us 5 to 7 p.m. during opening hours for our shop. And then we donate 10% of sales to their favorite nonprofit or charity. We find that's a great way to give back. And it's been a great way to spread the word about our business, especially in a really pivotal time. You know, We'll hopefully do more than 50% of sales this year during the months of kind of mid-October through mid-December. So that's where my head's at then. Next year, we're very excited. We are leaning into the mental health space as a business and we'll be launching events and retreats and a podcast all around helping our customers navigate mental health. It's a big platform. I talk about it a lot on my personal platform as well. Which brings me to what's next for me. I'm very excited. I'm actually launching a podcast in January called The Wholesale Way. And it is specifically aimed at indie makers and brand owners who are looking to get their products onto store shelves. So I'm super excited about that. And what has me most excited is as we leave this pandemic behind, I know we all want to do that. I do believe, and the reports are showing that consumer spending has shifted in a way that will hopefully stabilize in a great way as far as people recognizing the power of their dollar and shopping their values. And I'm very excited for all these small brands, these these dreamers, these people like just like my grandpa who started their own business and 
want to just help others and really serve others and bring these really cool things to market and bring their stories to market. And I just think we need more diverse stories out there. And I'm really excited to come alongside and journey with these brand owners as they, yeah, reach their goals. Well, that's fantastic. Once again, Emily Gray, founder of The Forest Market and The Wholesale Way. If you want to check out The Forest Market online, you can do so, theforestmarket.com. Emily, thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Thanks for all that you do, Trent. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we certainly thank Emily for joining us. It was a great chat with her. She shared a lot of insights. And again, these aren't just insights that she is coming up with. These are insights gleaned from visits with hundreds of small business retailers throughout the country. And I I would wager that very few people talk to as many of those small business retailers as what Emily does. So doing great work out there in the Raleigh metro area. And I meant what I said during the interview. If you haven't gotten a chance to go to Raleigh, I certainly recommend it. One of my favorite areas in the United States. Well, speaking of small businesses, I wanted to include a very short looking ahead about small businesses in general, just from my observations recently. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show in the news segment, you're starting to see store shelves go empty again. You're starting to see retailers worry, of course, about supply chain, about stocking their shelves during the holiday season. You really wonder how this is going to impact those small businesses. Also, e-commerce pure plays. We're seeing a lot of e-commerce pure plays post on their website that They anticipate running out of product by October 31st. They're already talking about offering maybe e-gift cards as a solution to shoppers. You really have to wonder if these supply chain shortages and the issues that a lot of companies are facing with their suppliers might benefit the larger retailers as well because the retailers like the Walmarts out there, like the Targets, do have that stronger connection with their suppliers They order more, and you're talking about not only economies of scale, but that strength in connection. And so you kind of wonder if that's going to parlay itself into success as the holiday season progresses, where they might be the only ones with product on their shelves as compared to maybe a smaller, even a smaller chain store that might be 50 to 100 stores strong. So just something to keep an eye on as we go into Q4. Well, The looking ahead story that I wanted to spend the bulk of this segment talking about comes by way of Wawa, one of our favorite convenience store retailers. And I would say second to Quick Trip in terms of the overall convenience store concept in the United States. I am a Quick Trip devotee, but Wawa, like I said, a very close second. They are just killing it up there in the northeastern United States. They trialed self-checkout in a handful of stores in the Philadelphia metro area, and now they are announcing via an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer this last week by Christian Hetrick that they will be installing self-checkout machines in 61 stores throughout various regions, but most of them in Philadelphia, and they'll continue to roll them out throughout the rest of their location base as the year progresses and as we go into 2022. 
Now, they do have 850 stores in six states. The pilots were in just a couple dozen locations. Apparently, customers very much enjoyed them. If you've ever been to a Wawa during lunchtime, I can tell you firsthand you will experience lines and probably very significant lines. The self-checkouts were said to have reduced lines in the stores in which they were piloted. And we know Wawa doing great things with their loyalty program, doing great things with their app as well. We've talked about it via interviews on the show in the past. This is just another option for them to kind of tie into that digital rewards program. Now, again, convenience store self-checkout has earned mixed reviews overall from both the convenience stores trying them and the customers. But you have to think, in the case of a business like Wawa, where they do face such a rush during especially the lunch hour, but also during the morning hours as well, that this might help to accelerate some of their throughput. I'm looking forward to see how other convenience store retailers, including those, you know, you look at the bevy of convenience stores run by Kushtard, for example, in North America. You wonder when those will be added. You have a lot of franchised convenience stores as well, and you wonder when they're going to jump in, if they ever do, to the self-checkout mechanism. This isn't going all the way to eliminating the checkout process like some retailers, including 7-Eleven, have kind of trialed, but I do think this is a positive step for some of those regional convenience store chains in the U.S. Casey's comes to mind as another one that might be able to use the self-checkouts. But we'll see how Wawa likes it because we've seen chains roll out self-checkouts in the past and then roll them back. We know that dollar stores are beginning to roll them out. We know stores like Five Below, more specialty retailers, are beginning to roll them out. So we'll see exactly how this goes on the East Coast in the C-Store space. Well, that'll do it for us here on the podcast. Once again, big thanks to Leighton Behind the Scenes and a big thanks to Emily Gray for joining us. I'm Trent saying so long until next week. We'll be joined by Rod Signs of Deloitte once again as Deloitte this next week will launch a deeper dive into their preliminary holiday expectations. We had Rod on the show to talk about those preliminary expectations, but now we're going to go deep into the data with him this coming week. So very excited to do that with him. And we'll see you all approximately seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.